Good morning. Well, today we have a very exciting story to look at. We've got a story of death, of angelic deliverance, of divine judgment, of imprisonment. We're looking at the moment at some stories from the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a book of the Bible, uh, in the New Testament of the Bible, and it tells us about the first kind of 30 years of the history of the church. But it's not just there to tell us what happens, as amazing as it is. It's there with some really important lessons for us to learn. And today's story, which is full of drama, it's the kind of thing that good movies, good TV series are made of. There's even some comedy, actually, in this, if you read it carefully. You know, God's got a good sense of humor. There's comedy in the Bible, too. But actually, it's not just there to entertain us. God's put this chapter in the Bible to teach us some really important lessons that we're going to try and draw out together today. We're in Acts 12 today, so we've got a Bible, might want to turn there. And this is kind of the midpoint of the book of Acts. And so far, lots of great stuff has happened. And just in the kind of two chapters before, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, has gone to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. God's shown up and done some incredible things. And he's shown that actually Jesus coming is not just for a small group of people. Actually, it's for all people, regardless of race, regardless of background. And then just after Acts 12, we're going to get Paul go off on his first missionary journey. This guy who had this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus commissioned him to invite people to follow Jesus. He travels around the known world, telling people about Jesus, seeing churches established, seeing amazing things happen. And then right in the middle of that, we've got this Acts 12, a chapter where one of the apostles is executed, a chapter where another of the apostles is imprisoned, and where God actually kills a Gentile king. We might think this is kind of a bit out of place. There's all this amazing stuff here, all this amazing stuff there, and then there's lots of things going wrong in the middle. But actually, I think God has put this chapter here to teach us some really, really important lessons. He's put it here to teach us about opposition. Because wherever the good news about Jesus is proclaimed, wherever his people are doing his work, there will be opposition. That's what Jesus has told us. That is what Jesus has promised us. This opposition can be from humans who don't like Jesus and don't like the claims of the Bible and what his people are saying. Or it can be from supernatural powers, it can be from Satan and his demons, or actually it can be the two working together. And the Bible promises that where the good news about Jesus is preached and proclaimed, there will be opposition. There's a battle going on. We know for certain that Jesus has won the victory. We know for certain that he will be victorious. But all the while, there's real conflict that we are involved in. And so we as a church, as we kind of venture into this next season of going multi-venue, which the very heart behind that is actually to tell more people about Jesus, to kind of go wider, to reach more people, we need to expect opposition. It's going to come because the Bible says where Jesus is proclaimed, there'll be opposition. But God's giving us Acts 12 to resource us and equip us to understand how we should respond, what the results will be, and what the ultimate resolution God will be when opposition comes. So let me quickly pray for us, and then we're going to read Acts 12 together. Father God, thank you that you've given us your word to equip us for everything you call us to. And right now I pray as we look at this chapter together, would you come and bring the truth to our hearts? Holy Spirit, I pray you come and help us to understand this, to apply it, and to be equipped and uh, encouraged and uh, emboldened by you. Amen. I'm going to actually read the whole of Acts 12 in one go, because what Luke has done in this chapter is he's placed three stories side by side in order that we kind of interpret them and read them together. So it's quite a long chunk. We're going to read it all out, and then we'll pick it apart. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them at its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's just his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give the glory, God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. And breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The church are facing opposition. Here it's human opposition from a guy called Herod. This, by the way, is Herod Agrippa I. So this is the grandson of the guy who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And it's the uncle of the guy to whom Pilate sent Jesus and who agreed that Jesus to be executed. So the Herods aren't very nice people. They don't like Jesus. They didn't like the Christians. And he is laying violent hands upon the church. He's got one of the apostles, these men, commissioned by Jesus to establish a church. And he's executed him, that's James. And he sees how much people are like that, so he thinks, well, I'm going to do some more. And then he arrests Peter. But this isn't actually the first time the church faced opposition in the book of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 4, they're preaching about Jesus. And the authorities forbid them to speak about Jesus or to do anything in his name. In Acts 5, the apostles are arrested. And in Acts 7, we get the first Christian martyr. A guy called Stephen who's killed because of what he says about Jesus. But this shouldn't be a great surprise to us. And it wouldn't have been a great surprise to the disciples because they knew that when Jesus was with them on earth, 
He promised them they were going to face opposition. He said things like, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's a pretty bad situation to be. If you're a sheep in the midst of wolves, you're going to be pretty scared. He says, beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. He even says opposition is going to come sometimes from within families. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And he summarizes it. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This wouldn't be a surprise to the disciples because Jesus had said, this is what happens when he's proclaimed in the world. But we might find it quite hard to relate to what goes in this chapter. The idea of execution, the idea of imprisonment, to us might seem a very foreign concept of being a Christian. Very sadly, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that wouldn't be the case. Persecution of Christians worldwide, actually, is on the rise. There's a charity called Open Doors who work supporting persecuted Christians, and they've just released their 2017 World Watch List, which is a thing each year they do. It's kind of one of the most comprehensive surveys and studies of persecution across the world. And they've just released the findings that for the fourth year in a row, persecution of Christians uh, around the world is on the rise. That last year, 2016, more people were martyred for being Christians than the previous year in 38 different countries, people were killed. All around the world, Christians like you and I have been imprisoned, have been placed in labor camps, they're having restrictions placed on basic things like water and electricity. Christians are being tortured, Christians are being martyred. And when um, Open Doors released this report a few weeks ago, they had a big launch event at Parliament and they shared some stories, real life stories, of people they've been working with. They talked about Aminu Sule, who's a pastor in Nigeria. He leads a church which five years ago had 400 people uh, attending, 400 people in membership. They're now down to 20 people because people are being opposing them because of what they say about Jesus. Many have fled, many have been killed. Another one was a guy called Daniel. He's a church leader from Iraq. He told the story of how on his 16th birthday he had to flee Baghdad because of Al-Qaeda coming in. And he was quoted as saying, my gift for my 16th birthday was crying all the way and escaping and looking for a safe place. And then he told of how now, more recently, with so-called Islamic State being controlled in many of the areas where he lives and where he's ministered, and how as Christians they are commanded either to pay a tax, to convert to Islam, or to be executed publicly. This is very real stuff going on around the world to our brothers and sisters. And it's so important, I think, that we know this, actually and that we stand with them and support them in prayer. But I actually want to apply this chapter primarily today to us. Now, we are hugely fortunate in this country that we face much less severe opposition. But we do still experience opposition. And increasingly, actually, the way that society around us thinks and acts is coming into conflict with Jesus and the claims of the Bible. And what's kind of happened over the last, even just the last decade, two decades, is that Christians have not so much been seen just as silly or old-fashioned anymore, but increasingly Christians are being seen as hateful and oppressive. And opposition against Christians in this country has been on the rise. Increasingly Christians are being spoken against. Increasingly legal cases are being brought against Christians. So this is a live issue for us today. And probably isn't going away. I wouldn't be surprised if in my lifetime, people in this country go to prison for preaching what the Bible says. So it's really important that we said, what does God say to us about this? As Acts 12 is going to see, help us see, what should our response be when we face opposition? To help us understand what will the results be that come from opposition? And then help us to see the wonderful resolution that God has guaranteed us at the end of it all. So let's start off with the response. 
How should we respond when we face opposition for being followers of Jesus? Should we start campaigning about it? Should we start complaining? Do we get indignant? Do we use force? Well, the early church didn't do any of that. What the early church did when they faced opposition is they got together and they prayed. They got before God who is Lord over all, God who is in control of everything, and they prayed. In this chapter we see when Peter is imprisoned, we're told that earnest prayer was made to God on behalf of him. That was their knee-jerk reaction, the thing they immediately went to when opposition was coming. They didn't express great shock. They didn't start lobbying the authorities. They didn't start using violence. They got together and they prayed to God. And I think this was something they learned from Jesus. Because if you know the disciples, you might be quite surprised that they actually respond in this way. You might expect that when they face opposition, they're going to get violent. Because if we go back to Luke's first volume, okay, so Acts is part two of Luke's work. He writes Luke's gospel about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then part two is Acts about the church. Back in part one, Luke's gospel, we find the story of the arrest of Jesus. And when Jesus is arrested, his disciples panic and they start to get violent. And we're told actually they draw their swords and they chop off the ear of the high priest's servant. Their default response was to use violence when opposition came. So what's changed their mind? This chapter 12 in Acts is only about 10 years later. What's changed their mind? I think they'd seen how Jesus acted. I think they'd learned from him. You see, when the disciples are going mad and they're chopping off this guy's ear, Jesus remains calm. And Jesus manages to keep to his uh, teaching of non-retaliation. Jesus keeps to his teaching of loving his enemy. He actually takes the guy whose ear's been chopped off, the guy who's arresting him, who's going to execute him, and he heals him. He demonstrates in action his love towards his enemy. The disciples had seen this, and what was the difference they'd observed between them and Jesus? I think it was that Jesus had prayed. Because just before the arrest, Jesus has gone to Gethsemane. He knows what's coming. He wants to come before his father and pray for strengthening. And he comes to his disciples. He says, guys, stay here and pray for me while I go off over there and I'm going to pray. And Jesus goes off and he prays and he comes back and he finds the disciples asleep. They couldn't even stay awake with him one hour to pray. And then when the arresting party goes, he keeps to his teaching And the disciples panic and start using violence. It was prayer that enabled Jesus to respond to opposition in the right way. And it's really interesting that when uh, Jesus prays in Gethsemane in Luke 22, uh, Luke says he made earnest prayer. Or he prayed earnestly. And then we come to Acts 12. When Peter is arrested, the church make earnest prayer. These are the only two places in the whole of the New Testament where prayer is talked about being earnest. Where those words are used together. Luke's deliberately trying to show us, look, these guys have learnt from Jesus. This is what Jesus did. Now this is what we're to do. What Jesus showed them in that garden is that the best weapon we have when we face opposition is prayer. It's not to take out a sword, it's not to get violence. The best weapon, the best response we can do is to pray. And we see the disciples really did learn this. Earlier in Acts, Acts 4, when um, Peter and John are told they're not to talk about Jesus, they're not to do anything in Jesus' name, The default response to the church, they get together and they pray. And they ask particularly that God would fill them with his Holy Spirit, would give them courage and give them boldness to keep following him, even when opposition comes. And this raises for us the question, what do we pray? When opposition comes, what type of prayers are we praying? Because it's striking that when Peter arrives at Mary's house in Acts 12, you'd think they go, yes, our prayers have been answered. But they don't. 
they don't believe it's even possible that it could be Peter. Which might suggest, to be honest, they hadn't been praying for his release. They'd been praying for something else. And the allusion to Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane suggests probably they're praying uh, that God's will would be done. The ultimate thing they're praying is they're coming before God and they're saying, God, you're in control. Now, God, do your good plan. And also, I think they would have prayed for Peter and prayed for themselves. Because what the disciples do in Acts 4 is they say, God, these people, these Gentile rulers are opposing you. Now fill us with your Holy Spirit. Now give us courage. Now give us boldness. And it's really striking throughout Acts. They never pray for people to become Christians. They never pray much about what's going on. They pray that God would equip them so that God might work through them. I think the primary thing we do when we face opposition, actually, is we pray that God would equip us. That God would strengthen us. That God would give us courage and boldness to continue proclaiming him, continue following him, no matter what might happen. So prayer was the automatic response of the early church when they faced opposition. And the challenge to us is simply, would the same be said if people looked at our lives? When we face opposition, when we are proclaiming Jesus in Hastings and St. Leonard's and Bexhill and then beyond, which we will, are we going to get violent? Are we going to complain? Are we going to campaign? Or are we going to make our first priority coming before God and praying for his strengthening? When you face opposition from your colleagues, from your friends, from your neighbours, maybe even from your family, what's your response going to be? Are you going to water down your beliefs? Are you going to hide away? Or actually are you going to pray that God will strengthen you to give you courage to keep following him? So that's the response. That's the first thing Acts 12 wants to teach us about opposition. The next thing is about the results. What are the results of opposition? What should we expect to kind of happen as opposition comes? And some would say we should always expect God to work and bring kind of amazing, miraculous deliverance. That God will always intervene in the most incredible ways and that he'll reduce physical suffering. He'll make sure that we're kept safe physically. And if we had only the story of Peter in Acts 12, that would be a good answer. Because the story of Peter here is incredible. He's been imprisoned. He's sitting there not knowing what's going to happen. He's just sleeping. And an angel appears. The chains which are binding him just spontaneously break off. The angel takes him past all these guards and they just stay sleeping. They go to the gates and they open automatically. This is an incredible, miraculous deliverance. So miraculous that when they turn up at Mary's house, the Christians don't even believe it's possible. They don't even believe it's happened. And wonderfully, sometimes God will bring incredible, miraculous deliverance like that. But we don't only have the story of Peter in Acts 12. We also have the story of James in Acts 12. It's much shorter. We can almost miss it in those first few verses. But James is an apostle, just like Peter. But James doesn't get a physical deliverance. James is actually executed. It doesn't fit with the God will always intervene in an amazing way view. Why didn't God deliver James? Why uh, deliver Peter, but not James? Maybe God wasn't able to. Well, no, it can't be that. The Bible is really clear that nothing is impossible to God. Maybe the church didn't pray for James. That seems really unlikely. He would have been imprisoned before being executed. And it's madness to suggest the church would pray for Peter, but not pray for James. I think the two examples that Luke's deliberately put together for us to read together are kind of um, show us the reality of the results of opposition. Could God always bring miraculous deliverance? Absolutely he could. Will he always? Actually, no. And there's a mystery here. We don't know why this is. It's one of those things we have to put our hands up and say, we don't know why God doesn't always work in miraculous ways to bring physical deliverance when there's opposition to Christians. There are some things that God, in his wisdom, he knows, he understands, he's doing the best thing. And we just have to say, you know what? He's the creator. 
we're the created. We can't understand. But there are two things which I think do help us to live with that mystery. One is that what we do know is that God is still in control. There's no doubt that when James is executed, when Peter is imprisoned and delivered, God is still in control over it all. We know this in part because Jesus said all this would happen. He said there'd be opposition. He said that some of the apostles would die. This is no surprise to God. And we know it because he's promised that whatever happens, whatever it might look like to us, he's always working for the good of those who love him. The first thing we can stand firm on in the midst of this mystery is that God is still in control. The second thing is that ultimately James was delivered. Just as ultimately every Christian, every believer in Jesus will receive the ultimate deliverance. Because James' real enemies was no human. It was no human authority. The real enemies for James, the real enemies for all of us are sin and death. But Jesus has conquered sin and death. And though James might have lost his life through execution, he would have been delivered by Jesus to spend all of eternity in utter perfection with him. Ultimately, there's nothing that can truly harm a Christian. And that's another thing we can cling on to in the mystery of why are some people delivered and some people not. We don't know. But we know that ultimately every Christian will be saved and protected by God to spend all eternity with him. And as we think about this kind of tension, there's a great Old Testament story that really sums it up. And I think really helps us to think about how we live in it. It's a story we find in the book of Daniel. Quite a famous book, a famous story, the story of the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the great Babylonian empire, he loves himself a bit too much and makes this gigantic golden statue. And he says, everyone, when this music plays, you have to bow down and worship my statue. But there are three guys, three friends of Daniel, who are Jews, they're worshippers of the living God, the God of the Bible. And they say they're not going to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes to them and he warns them, he says, if you don't bow down and worship my statue next time the music plays, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so these three guys, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, if this be so, if we're thrown into the uh, fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, if he doesn't save us from the fire, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think they've understood what we've just seen in Acts 12. They know that their God is able. He is able, without question, to save them from that fiery furnace. And I think they also know that they will receive ultimate deliverance. Notice they say he's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. They don't say he will deliver us out of the fiery furnace, but they do say he will deliver us out of your hand. They know that whether they live or whether they die in that fiery furnace, the hand of the king cannot truly harm them, because they are in God's people. But their ultimate response is they say, no matter what happens, whatever the earthly result, they commit that they're going to worship God, the living God alone. They're not going to worship anyone else. We don't always know the end result of opposition. God may or may not bring physical deliverance, may or may not bring an end to it. We do know he's able to bring it. We do know whatever happens, every Christian receives the ultimate deliverance. And our job is to commit ourselves to saying, I will follow the living God. I will worship Jesus, whatever might happen. The challenge to us is, do we share that sentiment? When our commitment to biblical truth, to what the Bible says, to Jesus' claims, threatens to end the friendship, are we going to water down what we believe? Are we going to hide away from the truth? Or are we going to say, I know that my God is able to preserve his friendship 
But even if he doesn't, I'm only going to worship him. When your commitment to biblical truth runs the risk of you losing your job, are you going to kind of hide it away? Are you going to change what you believe? Or are you going to say, I know that God is able to keep me in this job. But even if he doesn't, and I have no idea where the money's coming from, I have no idea how I'm going to care for my family, even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him alone. That's what, that's what God wants our heart to be in response to opposition. We need to be people who grow in faith and in commitment to following God. Because it's far easier to prepare for these things before they happen than it is to do it in the midst of it. Let's be people who are committed to reading the promises of God and the word of God so that faith in our heart might grow. And who spend our lives committing ourselves to following Jesus and enjoying life with him. So when those times come, we can stand firm and say, I know God's able to rescue me. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to follow him. That's then the different results that can come from resolution from uh, opposition. And finally, what's the resolution? The kind of very, very end of the story. How is God going to resolve all of this? Well, this is why Luke includes verses 20 to 24 at the end. He's trying to teach us two things through this story we might find a bit shocking, a bit confusing about where God kills Herod. The first thing he's teaching us through this is that ultimately justice will always be done. God is a just God. And he will one day bring to reality the justice which every human heart, because it's been made by God, truly longs for. And that's why he kills Herod at the end of this chapter. We often really struggle with stories of God killing people in the Bible. And we often think, well, this just doesn't, isn't in keeping with who God is. And actually, we've misunderstood the fact that God killing people in the Bible is an expression of who he is. God is holy. That means that God is utterly perfect. In every single way, he is utterly perfect. And he is, in so in every way, completely different to us. He is the creator, and we are the created. But all of us have sinned against this holy God. We've offended this holy God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, the thing you get in return for sinning, rebelling against the holy God, is death. That means that every single one of us deserves to be immediately killed by God because of our sin. And so the wonder, the wonder is not that in the Bible God kills some people. The wonder is that any of us ever get to live a life at all. It's only when we truly understand how perfect God is, how horrific and rebellious we have been, how horrific human sin is, that we begin to understand what it is that there are these stories in both Old and New Testament of God killing people in the Bible. And let's look specifically at what happens with Herod here. There's a bit of a complex thing going on. There's some people up in Tyre and Sidon. So that's two cities, two sounds up in the north above Israel and Phoenicia on the coast. And they get their food from Herod's kingdom. And so they need to be on good terms with Herod because if they're not, they're not going to get their food. But somehow they've made Herod angry. And so things are a bit tense and they're not getting the food. They need to get back on his good side. So one day they come before Herod and Herod gives this great oration, this great speech. And the people want to kind of appease him, want to play up to him. And so they cry out, oh, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod thinks, you're right. I quite like that. He laughs it up. He says, I am a God. I'm not a man. And God kills him. And Luke tells us the reason God kills him is because he did not give God the glory. Actually, the root of every single sin is that we, the created things down here, 
take the glory for ourselves or we give it to something down here rather than giving the glory to the one who rules over everything and the one who created us. That's why sin is a direct offense against God because he's worthy, because he made us, because he's the one overall. And we're the tiny created things down here and we ignore the creator. That's the root of every sin. And that's why every sin deserves punishment from God. And Luke places this story here, having told us about James being executed, having told us about Peter being imprisoned, to show us that ultimately God will bring justice. That ultimately one day God will pour out his judgment upon every bit of opposition, every bit of sin that's committed. God will work out perfect justice. Some of that we might see now. Most of that won't be seen until the final day when every person stands before Jesus, gives an account for their life, and Jesus judges all people. The wrath of God, his just punishment against sin, will be poured out against every human sin ever committed, either on the individuals who committed it themselves, or for those who put their faith in Jesus, the wrath of God will be poured out upon Jesus on the cross so that we get to go free. There will be a complete and utter resolution when perfect justice will be done. That's the first thing that Luke wants us to see about the resolution, the very end of opposition. The second thing is that God's kingdom still grows. Whatever happens, God wins. That very last verse we read said, all this has happened, all this opposition, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Opposition doesn't stop the success of God's mission. Actually, in God's wisdom, often it helps God's mission. Opposition is evidence that a real battle is going on, but it's not evidence that God is losing the battle. God's not worried by it. He's not surprised by it. He knows what he's doing, and whatever might happen, his kingdom will always prosper. And for us, the people of God, the guarantee for us is that we will be vindicated. The guarantee for us is that we will receive ultimate deliverance. All of God's purposes will prosper. And there'll be a day when all opposition ends. Because all sin will have been removed. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be put right. And all of God's people will live with him for all of eternity. So opposition is inevitable for us as Christians. The question is not, will we face opposition? The question is simply, when will it happen? And how are we going to respond and react when it does? And God's put Acts 12 here to teach us that our response needs to be to pray, particularly to pray for courage and boldness for ourselves to keep living God. He's put it here to show us that the results, we don't really know, they can be varied, but that whatever happens, we need to say, we know God's able to deliver, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to follow him alone. And he's put this chapter here to show us that ultimately there'll always be a perfect resolution. Perfect justice will be done, and God's plans and purposes will always succeed. God's will always win. We've got a few moments to respond now. And the way I'd love us to do this, actually, is just to pray for each other, to kind of put this into action. Now, I know that sometimes we don't like doing that, and that might make you really nervous, but let me encourage you. This is a safe place. We are family together. Prayer is not about impressing the people you're praying with. It's just about being honest with God and saying what you want to say. So we're going to get into twos or threes in just a moment and pray for God to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to give us boldness and courage. And if you don't like praying, this is a great place to learn how to pray by listening to what others do. And let me just say, if you're visiting us this morning, if you're not a Christian, please don't feel any pressure to take part in this. Feel free to sit down, stand around, listen, watch, do whatever you want to do. There'll be other people doing the same. So please do not feel at all uncomfortable about that. But can I encourage you, let's get on our feet. I'm going to work you hard for these last four minutes. Let's get into twos or threes. 
And pray those big prayers that when opposition comes, we'd have courage and boldness to cling to what God says. To say whatever God does, whether he delivers or not, I'm going to follow him. And then I'm going to come up and wrap up in prayer in a moment. So a few moments praying for each other. Let's really battle for some courage this morning. And then I'll wrap it up.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that we know you already have the decisive victory. Thank you that we know that we are on the winning side. And Lord God, right now we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us? Would you come and give us courage and boldness? So when opposition comes, when as we stand up for your truth, as we proclaim you, when people oppose us, when people dislike what we're saying, I pray you give us the courage and boldness to stick with your truth. I pray we'd be men and women who say, my God's able to deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him and alone. Holy Spirit, we say strengthen us with courage and boldness. Encourage us, I pray. Draw near to us in those moments and help us, we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone. We're going to close our gather time there. Please do hang around, uh, join us for a tea coffee. If it's your first time with us, you're visiting us, do head over to the welcome area there. We'd love to say hello. And if you've got kids, it's time to go and collect them now.